0: We are going through the book of Acts, and that has been really fun for us so far because we're looking at the history of our witness. We're going back to move forwards. We want to take a look at who we've always been as the church so that we can be um, a faithful presence going forward. Uh, And so last week, we saw the church respond to resistance and oppression from the religious leaders And uh, during that time, they they prayed, right? Instead of fighting or fleeing, they put their roots deep in prayer and asked for boldness to be faithful in their witness, to share boldly. And they did. They preached Christ boldly, and they also shared their stuff. And so it was this actually amazing thing. We saw this example of how the church became bold and generous, and this guy named Barnabas sold a field and he laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. It's a symbolic term for trusting their leadership with the funds and saying, okay, move the, use this for God's work in our world. And so um, that's exciting. And there's lots of exciting uh, examples in the story of Acts, but then there's this counterexample in chapter 5 where we see that not everything was so pretty. Like, not everything was exemplary in the early church. And when you look back, we kind of can't idealize the early church because it was also messed up, just like the church in every age. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning. So if you have a Bible, read Acts chapter 5 with me. Um, Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died, right? And great fear came on all who heard of it. Duh. (laughs) That's that's pretty intense. Uh, Verse 6, the young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. I'm sorry, I'm chuckling. In verse 7, an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And he said, yeah. Or she said, yeah, for so much. This is the sum. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people uh, by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest of uh, them dared to join, uh, but the people held them in high esteem. Verse 14. Uh, that was like a pit crew, NASCAR style. <laughs> Dan backs for the win. All right. Uh, no, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. That just seems like a gnarly story, doesn't it? I mean, we've been, we've been traveling through Acts and it's been highlight reel after highlight reel. Like the, the room is shaken, the spirit comes, Peter preaches, 3,000 are added to the number, there's resistance, but Peter keeps his nerve and people are healed. And then we hit like a speed bump, don't we? Like, then a couple of people drop dead for lying about what they gave. That's jarring. That's a jarring story. And I would say to you, I think if we're reading as modern readers, we're going to go, does that actually make sense with this early Jesus movement at all? Um, So in order to make sense of what's happening, what I want to do this morning is I want to zoom out and look at this whole section of what Luke's doing, and we'll zoom back in and look at some of the ways this has principles for our own life. The first thing I want to do, though, is say, uh, Luke is writing... A narrative, right? And he's arranging everything in a way that actually makes sense. He's leading us to a point. Um, So if you zoom back out, uh, some of the ways that biblical authors write narratives is they use a structure called a chiasm, right? It's where the outer pieces match, and then there's some inner pieces that match, and then there's like a centerpiece to the narrative, right? And that's kind of the punctuation or the exclamation point. And so when we look at the book of Acts uh, 2 through 5, We get the outer bookends of this section where there are disciples gathering daily at the temple in chapter 2 and in chapter 5. And so it repeats this phrase, they're gathering daily at the temple. That's the setting and that's the practice. Their life is together and they're in and around the temple courts. And then a layer inside that, within that narrative, in chapter chapter 3 and the first bit of chapter 4, you have Peter healing and preaching and there's resistance. There's opposition from the religious leaders. The same is true In the second half of chapter 5, we'll look at that next week. Peter's preaching, and there's healing. We just read some of it. And there's resistance from the religious leaders. And at the center of it all is this bit about the disciples praying for boldness, and they're they're selling their possessions, and they're preaching the gospel uh, boldly. I forgot an L, apparently. And there's this key verse, verse 34. It says, There was not a needy person among them... Uh, for as many were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and they brought the proceeds and they shared their stuff. But that phrase, there wasn't any poor among them, was actually really interesting. It's just triggering something from the Old Testament. When you read through the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving this last sermon and he's preparing the people to enter the land and he's saying, here's the deal. God's gonna pick a place to be worshiped. And at that place, here are some things that need to happen. And he walks through chapter 14 and chapter 15, this idea of a tithe where people give 10% of their their crop, right? It's an agrarian society, so their income, they take off 10% and they give it to the work of God through the temple, right? And then in chapter 15, you read about uh, there aren't to be any poor among you, right? And then the realism sinks in, and then it says, well, when there are poor among you, do this. And then by the end of the chapter, it says, there's always going to be poor among you. It's a fascinating chapter to read. But the point being, the work of the temple is involves like no poor, right? Like we're actually to share our stuff through a central fund and like help people live, and God's presence is ministered there. And so what is happening, I borrowed this phrase from Tim Mackey at the Bible Project. You have a tale of two temples. There's the real physical temple, and it's a place that's exploitive. Jesus has just turned over the tables and he's not happy with the way things are going there. And you have the religious leaders at the temple and they're opposing the Jesus movement. But then you have what we could call the true temple, right the new temple. You actually have God's presence in his people, not in a place, but in a people. And those people are doing all of the things that the temple was always meant to do and be about. God's presence is there. People are healed and restored, and stuff is shared, and do do you see what's happening? And so Peter's making a really clear point to say um, that the the people are the temple, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, uh, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are the temple. Sounds kind of familiar to the chapter we're reading, right? And so we have this picture of the people who no longer act for their own interest, but they act for the interest of God and his people. They are the embodiment of his presence. And so that's the point Luke's making. This is the new temple. And so the devotion of the people to Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit makes the old temple obsolete. And that's why there's a clash and there's resistance between the new temple and the old. And so when you get to the narrative of Ananias and Sapphira, it's not an isolated event that says don't screw with Peter. It's actually a a very important event within a larger narrative flow that says these people are violating the essence of the community that they're a part of. And so there's these consequences within it. And so... um, What I want to point out today is just four things that I think this story just helps us see to give perspective to us as we relate to the church. I don't expect anybody to drop dead most Sundays. Um, But I think that we see a narrative where there is an early purification of motives that are going to bring disaster to the church if they're allowed to live. And we'll we'll come back to that in in a minute. The first thing I want to show you this morning is that Luke includes a bad example as well as the good to communicate this: that the church is always a mixed community. It's a, it's, a, it's a mixed community, right? It's not all good and it's not all bad. It's good bad. Okay? This is this is the model that I think we see. Um, Luke's not naive about the church's capacity to act hypocritically. And so he includes this. He's not hiding any of the warts when he tells you, this is the story of the church. This is what happened. This is the history of our witness. It has ugly spots. He's honest about it. And so he, he's not presenting an idealized picture of the church. He doesn't romanticize anything. And so <clears throat> he shares examples of the good and the bad, and that's always true, which... Uh, St. Augustine uh, made this quip. I think, I'm pretty sure it was him. I've tried to find it, and I haven't found it, but everybody says it's Augustine. He says that the church may be a whore, but she's our mother, right? What he's saying is, look, the, the, and, and it's offensive, and it's all, all of that, yeah. I, I, that's the point, right? He's saying it's, it's messed up. It's not faithful, and yet it, it is our mom, right? Like, it's, it gives birth to, to spiritual kids um, who know Jesus. And so we have to learn to hold attention when we think about the church, to hold the church in tension, because it's actually true for all people. All people live in this tension of good and bad. And it shouldn't surprise us when we find people like Ananias and Sapphira in church. They've been there since the beginning, Uh, And we're tempted to say, you know, I love Jesus, but there's too many hypocrites in his church. And well, guess what? It's not a new thing. There's always been uh, some level of hypocrisy. And I would also dare you to find any person that is not a hypocrite at some point in their life, right? or some area of their life. We don't all live up to everything that we agree to. Um, One author said that the church meets no failure or deceit in the world that it has not first encountered in itself. I I appreciate that because there's a humility that when we face the world, we have a a humility of self-awareness. It says we're not perfect, but we know the God who is, and he's a redemptive God. And so Jesus, on one hand, doesn't say, to expect a perfect church, although he does promise that the Spirit will do a work of perfecting in each one of us, that we're to be subject to. And so there's these examples of failure here to help us see the, precarious, the spiritually precarious places and attitudes in our own life, uh, because the truth is that we all have the potential and capacity to be more like Ananias and Sapphira than we would care to admit. And so there's a danger, and I would say this because we're a month in, we are now on five Sundays, next week we can stop counting how many times we've met on one hand, which is exciting, right? We're at at a two-hand stage, and uh, that's cool. Uh, But we're at an early stage, which means there's always this temptation to be idealistic, to be idealistic. Um, And and we'll see the power of God and what he's doing, and, and he is doing something. This is not insignificant but it, it's then easy to take what he's doing and mistake it for a person or a practice and it leads to this thing called idolatry, right where we make an idol out of the the result rather than the cause right? and uh, I, I do this thing in, in marriage counseling where we'll look at expectations for marriage, and there's always a couple of lines like i w- i can't find I'll never find anything about my future spouse that would displease me like Right, And the married people laughed. Right? And I always love when that box is checked, and I go back and I revisit it, and I'm like, so let's test this out. Right? like I just want to poke this with a stick. What am I looking for? I'm looking for this thing called idealistic distortion, where we look at the other person through rose-colored glasses. I'm like, let's, let's road test this expectation. Right? Um, and so if we're not careful, we'll potentially miss the ways that Satan has brought opposition from within usually via our own idealism, which can distort our expectations. And guess what? When our expectations are met, it often leads to idolatry. But when our expectations are unmet, that goes towards cynicism, and we start to distance ourselves from the work of God and his people. And so it's a dangerous, dangerous road to walk. What we actually need is gospel realism, right? A realism that says people are good and bad. They bear the image of God, and they're broken, and I'm in the same camp. And so we learn to expect the, the redemptive work of God, and it's going to be messy, and it's going to involve grace and truth. So in the story, Luke tells us that there are people like Ananias and Sapphira, and it's a bummer in community. There's also people like Barnabas who sell their fields, and they do it so others can eat and apostles can teach. And uh, there are couples uh, who work to bolster their reputation, there are couples are individuals like Barnabas who just, they give it all. And we learn to expect both with a kind of humble realism, okay? So the church is a mixed community. And I love that the point here is God loves the whole church. He loves the whole thing. Even though he takes their life, how gracious is it that he prevents their destructive habits from wreaking havoc on the whole, And so uh, he says, don't discount the beauty of the church just because there's brokenness in it too. Leads to the second thing. We do see beauty. The second thing we see here is that the church is a voluntarily generous community. Uh, It's perhaps easy to miss this point and think that Ananias and Sapphira hit the floor dead because they held back funds. But read the text, right? Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? What had happened was that they came and they said, yeah, we sold a field and here are all the proceeds. Right? They, were, they were pretending that they were more generous than they were. Right? They, they were actually pursuing uh, people's opinion of them rather than the reality, okay? And so the, the, the issue is not that they held money in reserve. The issue is actually their deception. Peter criticizes and confronts the deceptive nature of what they've done. Right? And actually, what he says is um, you, the money was yours. It was yours before you sold the field. It was money, it was yours after you sold the field. Like that was yours. You're under no compulsion to give it. You're under no judgment if you don't. If you go on vacation or buy a hot tub, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. You're under no compulsion. But what Peter is getting at is you have lied and therefore compromise the relationships that we have. And that's actually what's destructive. And so the, the church is uh, never puts people under compulsion to give their property. But what we see in Acts is a church that is voluntarily generous. And when we see these people giving up their property, what I want to point out here is that it, it's important to understand that these are Jews who grew up with the temple at the center of their universe. And they grew up with all of the texts from Moses that had a practice of giving their 10%. And so when they're selling fields and stuff like that, this is all above and beyond kind of generosity. And so this new temple that replaces the old temple is full of followers of Jesus, bearing witness to his resurrection, saying, my stuff's not my own. I'm going to be voluntarily generous And so the the New Testament kind of assumes this Old Testament principle of 10% giving. It was just built in to how these people would have thought about generosity and pulling in resources together through a common fund. And the New Testament never amplifies that as a command. And so what I say is it's not a law, nor is 10% a limit. It's like Old Testament training wheels for how to live righteously. It, and so it's not a law, and it's not a limit, but I would say this, it has been a liturgy. It has been a habit or a practice of the people of God to learn the habit of worship through generosity. Right? And it's very easy in our culture to distance that. We're, what we are used to, as we, we relate money to a good and a service, right? That's just how we think about it, right? and. And so when we think about giving, we usually think, like, well, what's it doing, right, and where's it going? And, I, and this is why, as Colossae, we have full transparency on the books. Like, you can know whatever you want to know. It's all there. But the, the, So, in other words, we want to be trustworthy. The, on the other hand, uh, when we overplay, like, what does it accomplish, what we're doing is we're still trying to retain control of it, and it's not actually worship at that point. It's actually just I'm I'm trying to manage a goodness service, so we want to be faithful and we want to give to somebody and, and to churches that are faithful, but at the same time we don't want to over collapse our giving into a goodness service. We actually we're not vendors of religion, right? This is, our giving is actually worship. And so here's the point, the couple who sold a field and held some back, they were under no compulsion because they were part of a community that was absolutely voluntary in its generosity. And so we continue to encourage that habit of generosity and we're committed to financial transparency. But one thing I want to say to you just to encourage you this week, and this is amazing, I'm actually, I'm still scratching my head about this. You've actually given more to the next church plant than it cost to plant this one. That's just sitting in a fund waiting to plant. I'm just saying, that's the generosity of God's people. Like, that's worthy of celebrating. So, like, be encouraged today. Like, God's doing something here to where we're committed to multiplication because we think it honors God. And so I just want to encourage you and say, we, we as a congregation, we've already set more aside than its cost to start so that, that's, that's worthy, and we want to continue that trajectory. So that's the second thing. There's, the community is voluntary, not compulsory. And, and so where that comes from, though, is this third point. The thing that we, I want you to see this morning is that the heart is the epicenter of our choices. The heart's the epicenter of our choices. Peter asked Ananias, why has Satan entered your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? I, that's just a great question, Right? On one hand, you see the Holy Spirit filling the church. On the other hand, you see Satan influencing elements within the church. John Stott um, says that the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church by force from without, and his second tactic was to destroy it by falsehood from within. All right? This is the way it goes. And so I want to make this point short, but it's central. that The heart in the Bible is always at the center of human decision-making. When we talk about the heart, it's a biblical metaphor for the the center of our affections and our desires, our wants, our loves, and it always moves the will, right? And, And so Jesus, for example, will say to his disciples in John 14, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, right? If I capture your affections, like the obedience follows, You don't aim for obedience and hope you get affection. You aim for affection and obedience always follows. Or or again, when Jesus heals the man in John 5 at the pool of Siloam, he says, do you want to get well? He's tapping into this idea of desire because the heart is the center of our decision making and it's the heart that's embattled between competing desires. And so therefore the question is, why did you let Satan influence what you want? because he's a liar. And so why let the father of lies poison the well of your life that resources every other decision that you make? And so Peter's not actually describing a person possessed in need of deliverance. He's describing a person deceived in need of truth. You, You let Satan have influence on your heart and the result was destructive and it led to death. It's the same game that Satan's always played. You won't surely eat or surely die, right? That's what he says in Genesis 3. And here again, the lie to the spirit is this presumption that the rules somehow don't apply to me. Like I'm going to push God on this one and, and assume that he's just going to overlook it, that somehow I can act in a way that I'm not in reality and God's just unconcerned. And this is, this is what that looks like. And so, the reality of truth and conflict with falsehood is not primarily about being uh, rational creatures where we have to get the right ideas in our head. Truth and conflict with falsehood is about aligning our loves to ultimately desire what's good and true and beautiful. And so, truth and falsehood are matters not finally of thinking, but of loving, because they inform what we love. And the battle, in Peter's estimation, within this narrative is a spiritual one, and the ground to be won is the heart which isn't deterministic, actually. It's actually freeing for you to say today, I have a choice over what I allow to capture my affection. I actually have freedom to allow who influences where my heart goes and bends. I don't know if you have a practice in your life where you stop and just look at your own desires, but to stop before the Lord during the course of the week to make a practice of just saying, Lord, would you show me my heart? God, here's what I think I want. I'm putting it out before you to just vocalize it or journal it, to allow God to take a look at your desires, to reorient them. Say, God, is there any desire in me that's just bent away from you? To allow the Spirit to speak into that. It brings us to the final reality, and I want to show from the story that the pursuit of reputation will always violate the, the community that the Spirit creates. This is a total upper of a sermon, right? I know. I, I, I got it. Um, next week, we talk about how angels set people free from prison. Super cool. But let's not miss how important this story is. It's a massive speed bump in the history of the church. And so what I want to point out is that when we pursue reputation, let me put it positively. The Spirit creates a community that is sincere. And when we jockey for reputation, it actually makes no sense. It actually works against the grain of what God's creating. So we said that the issue for Ananias and Sapphira was that not that they held money in reserve. They had every right to hold the money in reserve. The giving is voluntary, right? But the issue was their deception. And then we said that the heart is the epicenter, right, of the decision-making process in the Bible, And so what is the desire? What is the want? What's the affection that drives them to do something that ends up killing them? Well, uh, what's the desire? What's the driving affection? I think it's the desire for reputation. It's the desire for reputation and status without the reality and sacrifice. That's what's going on here. It was to manage an image rather than to merely be who they were. They had every right to say, hey, I feel like we're in a half a field kind of season. Right? That's how we'd phrase it, if we had a field. I don't know. Some of you might have a field. Congratulations. But <laughs> what I would say is you, they had freedom to say, we're kind of just a half a field type of family right now. We're trying to prepare for rabbi school, for, I don't know. And so they had room but instead they felt a pressure to be deceptive because they wanted a reputation of being a whole field kind of person, right? And so I've often thought and said over the years that what we think we ought to be usually prevents us from dealing with where we really are. When we have a lot of oughts and shoulds running through our mind, like I ought to be this kind of person, I will pretend like that instead of deal with where I really am. And the reason that there's a distance between where you feel like you ought to be and where you actually are, and the reason you don't want to deal with where you are is because of shame and guilt and the things that come from the father of lies, not from the spirit, right? And so uh, you might not be struggling today with lying about how much you're giving. Like that's, I'm guessing, maybe not an issue for you. Maybe it is. But there may be an attitude or a practice or even a, a lack of practice that does undermine the spirit-created community. Uh, and so this story highlights how damaging our management of an image in pursuit of reputation is, right? That in the end, it undermines the trust that's inherent to the church. And so the reality is that we live in an age that's mostly digital, mostly uh, image, Right? Where we're subject to comparison all day long, right? We we compare one image to another all the time. It's ingrained into the fabric of our life, and it, we're vulnerable then to thousands of shoulds and oughts every day. I should eat clean. I ought to exercise three hours a day, like a movie star or whatever. Um, I then you, you start to feel a whole bunch of other shoulds. I, I should be a successful entrepreneur. I should be a good mom. I should have a perfectly balanced spiritual disciplined life. I, right? And uh, you can fill in the gaps of whatever that image is that you feel you should measure up to. But at some point, can we just admit, like, these are actually just images? Like, these are actually just images it's an image of the way we think others want us to be or an image of the way we want to portray that we are, but it's not us, right? Like, we're not that balanced. We did eat at McDonald's this week. Like, we, we did yell at the kids. Like, we haven't read our Bible in a month or whatever it is for you, right? Like, that's just the truth, right? That's where we're at, wherever you are at. I don't know. The point is the tragedy The tragedy of what Ananias and Sapphira did was that they betrayed the essence of their community to gain what they already had if they would have trusted the sufficiency of God's grace in their life. So here's my fear, honestly, for us. just honest fear for us today that we wouldn't be vulnerable before Jesus because we think we still have to earn a reputation for him that there's some reputation out there that we don't possess, and therefore we need to earn it. And and when we live that way, when reputation is the pursuit of our heart and image management is the posture of our heart and the substance of our spiritual life, we won't actually be free to love others for who they are, nor will we be free to be loved by others for who we are. are. Are you with me? Do you see how this works? If if the image is the end, then I'm always putting something between who I really am and the love you have to offer me. Are you with me? And so you never feel loved. And you can't ever really love somebody else because you don't know what it means to allow that in. Are you Are you with me? This is so huge for us. And so Jesus tells a few stories about fields in the Gospels. And he tells Tell some stories about fields. And Ananias and Sapphira, they sold theirs and they kept some for themselves to appear generous. We can do that. We can fake a spiritually significant life really well for years until we're just dead on the inside like they were on the floor. But Jesus tells this parable about someone who found a treasure in a field. You know this one? He finds a treasure in a field and then he goes and he sells everything he has, everything, so that he can go buy this field with a treasure in it and have the rights to it, right? And what's interesting to me is he holds nothing back in order to obtain the treasure in the field, and he rejoices at what he finds. Here's the good news this morning for you. The good news is that um, you're actually the field in that story. To Jesus, you're actually the treasure worth selling everything for. The gospel tells us that the God of heaven held nothing back. He sold every comfort, every convenience, and he expended himself to the point of suffering and death. And he took on your reputation. And he took on other people's reputation, reputation of a criminal and a thief and the deceiver of Israel so that we might actually have his reputation. The reputation of the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel. Because the good news is that um, you're already treasured. You, you already have status. You, you already have the reputation of Jesus Christ. I don't know a reputation better. And so jockeying for reputation, falsifying who we are to others, actually makes no sense because you have the status of the Son of God. And if you know that, it changes everything. When you know that, you're actually a Christian, right? I was chopping wood with my son this week because, uh, well, I was chopping most of the wood, okay? Uh, he is seven. It was safe. He did have a small ax, but it was, it, was, it was our time together outside, and we were, we were chopping wood. And at one point, you know, the wood breaks apart, and he stacks it up for me, and and I just said, dude, I, I really like you. And he goes, I know, I'm your son. Or I know, it's because I'm your son. Honestly, that just pierced me. Because in that moment, he had the sense to say, yeah, you, like, you delight me. I'm your treasure because, because of the relationship, because I'm your son. That, like, not because I've been good today not because i played super hard at soccer practice not because i finished my homework not because i haven't hit my sister for at least one week not because of anything i've done he said because i'm i'm your son i thought that that's it like can i hold on to that today that the father actually like he likes me right? and he likes you he loves you because you're his son or daughter, just because of that, because you're his treasure. And so if you trust Christ today, you're actually a daughter of the Father. You're a son of the Father who loves you, and that's simply it. You're just treasured. And then because of that, you actually have all the reputation you need. There's no other reputation needed and, and that's what, here's what this does for us. It actually enables us to be honest with where we are in relationship to things in our life. The ugly and the pretty, right? We can actually share ourselves with the assurance that we already have a given rec, uh, reputation. It enables us to be secure enough in Christ not to just manage an image, right? But to be ourselves before others. And get this, when you know you love like this, you become a safe person for others so that they don't have to manage an image. And you get to say, yeah, you're okay with me. There's n- n- you, you can't impress me because <laughs> you already have status. Because chasing a reputation will ultimately kill us. And so wh- when we live honestly with each other, I would say that there's this gives the spirit room, sorry, freedom and room, uh, if you're trying to talk fast. Nothing pushes the spirit away like a group of people who prefer an image to honesty. I would also say that nothing welcomes the spirit to form a community like a bunch of people who find their deepest reputation and what's freely offered by grace. It will just free us so much to be an accepting people to be a generous people, to be an honest people. I'm looking forward to walking that out together. And I'm seeing it working itself out. And so when you're tempted today to chase a phantom or a reputation, it'll happen within 10 minutes of leaving here. Right? We'll be tempted to chase a reputation, to, to manage an image. I just encourage you today to, to name it before the Lord. And say, I got that. That's image management. I'm just going to lay that before your feet and trust the sufficiency of my reputation and my standing in heaven. I want to encourage you today that uh, when you see others anxious over how they're being perceived, speak freedom. Speak freedom. Because he's enough reputation in your parenting. He's enough reputation in your vocation. He's enough reputation with your finances and in your relationships. And when we trust him, it doesn't give license to more sin, right? But it, it secures us in his grace such that we know like sin just doesn't actually make sense. And so this morning I want to invite you to the tables as a as a chance to just come before the Lord and say, I, I actually need you to purify my false motives. Maybe I don't even know where they are, but God, I'm asking you to just to, to make me pure. As I come to the table to trust what Christ has already done to, to make us his, his right, to, to unite us to him, we say, God, would you just keep purifying who I am? Would you burn off the stuff in me that's just not, that's chasing reputation instead of trusting in reputation? Because when we notice how God, brought consequences into that early community, it's interesting that it didn't stop the spread of the message. Instead, the opposite happened. Verse 14 says, "The "...more, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, and multitudes of both men and women." And here's what I think happens. I think that we see that there are times of purification in our lives and as the church that are actually preparation for times of movement by the Spirit. So we come to the table and we say, God, would you purify me and my motives so that your spirit can be free to move in and through my life and through us as a church? So we go to the table and we say, God, purify my desires as I behold Christ, the one who is my purification.